Would flying in and out of Reagan International Airport, if you're on an appropriate side of the airplane, you can see beautiful monuments, presidents, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Washington, and you may even be able to see a structure where all the laws of our land are written and established. If you're fortunate enough, though, you'll also have the breathtaking experience of seeing the hundreds of rows of thousands upon thousands of small white monuments that pepper the rolling hills of Arlington National Cemetery. There lie the soldiers who paid the greatest sacrifice for our freedom that we enjoy as a nation. Then the thought may also strike you, as it recently did one presidential candidate, while the laws of our land are written and legislated on one side of our nation's capital, capital, they really have no meaning whatsoever and application at all if it is not for the sacrifice of those who lie in the sacred place called Arlington National Cemetery. Someone had to live and die for the true law, for the truth of law, in order for you to be free. What good are the laws and what good is freedom those laws spell out if it wasn't for the sacrifice of those who died to allow us the opportunity to live and enact the truths of justice and freedom? And much more even in a spiritual sense, right? There had to be the perfect lawgiver and keeper who lived and died to make us spiritually free from the sin and vice of our own personal existence that has separated us from a holy God. This morning we find ourselves in John chapter 8. Grace and Mentor has been taking quite a long journey through this book recently together. And here we find Jesus, the perfect lawgiver and keeper, just six months away from paying the penalty of our sins on the cross of Calvary. He's in the city of Jerusalem celebrating one of three major feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, or some of you may know this as the Feast of Booths. There's Pentecost, and there's certainly Passover, and the third major feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. Since the beginning of the book of John, Jesus has been challenged as to his person and purpose by the merely religious sect in the city. During the Feast of Tabernacles, their onslaught against Christ continues. And even in the chapter before us, as Jesus concludes his I am the light of the world discourse, we find the religious ones confronting and doubting Jesus' person and purpose once again. And Jesus says to them, let's read in verse 21 together. Then he said to them again, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin where, am I, where I am going, you cannot, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself. And will he, since he says, where I am going, ye cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from heaven. I am from above. You are of this old world. I am not of this old world. Therefore, I say to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus saith unto them, what, I've, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. 
but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the whole world. Continues to clarify his person and his purpose, or re-clarify for these folks in verse 27. John says they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, speaking of his coming crucifixion in six months, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing of my own authority or my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And verse 30 sounds to us somewhat encouraging. We'll clarify this as we go along. And he also spake these things. And as he spake these things, many came to believe in him. We read something like this and our hearts are refreshed, at least up front. Kind of think, oh wow, maybe, maybe these... Religious ones finally got it right. God is so good and so merciful to rehearse with all who do not yet believe in him. His person and his purpose for coming to earth. You see, the religious ones' minds had been stimulated. But the longest 15 inches in the world when it comes to being born again can be from your head to your heart. The divine perfect law keeper and giver knows at this point he does not yet have the hearts of the religious ones. So in love, he keeps diving deeper and deeper past their minds to reach their souls. And there we have our text for today in Verses 31 and verse 32, as we read there, so Jesus was saying to these Jews who had believed him. Now this is, we'll find out, an intellectual ascent, not an ascent from the heart. If ye continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth is will make you free. True disciples of Jesus have been set free to live certain identifying or identifiers that would show to those around them their true spiritual identity was exclusively, as Pastor said early, in Jesus Christ alone. If you study on your own verses 31 to 59, the rest of the chapter, Jesus unpacks three specific and unique qualities of one who is exclusively in Christ and has been set free from their sin that had separated them from God. And here they are. If you're truly born again, you'll have no problem identifying God, your creator, as your father. Number two, you'll have no issue with proclaiming that our greatest possession that we have in Jesus is the inspired and preserved Word of God. And number three, you'll find out throughout the rest of the chapter that our greatest opportunity is to share in Christ's mission in proclaiming the good news 
to all men throughout the whole earth. Those are the three identifying realities of someone who's truly in Christ, that's truly been born again, and and Jesus is going to continue by stating and clarifying and repeating these three virtues of someone who's truly born again, he's going to, in doing so, he's going to be proving to those religious ones that they had given mere intellectual assent because they still did not identify with God as their heavenly father in a spiritual sense. They, they certainly did not believe in the living word of God, the logos that was speaking to them. Therefore, they could not live in him. And they certainly were not sharing, even close to sharing, his purpose and mission for why he came to earth. So, for this morning, we have time to unpack just the first of these three realities for someone truly set free. God is their heavenly father in a spiritual sense. You know, as a pastor, um, it's never a comfortable situation when you have uh, a gal come into your office with a boyfriend and she sets up the appointment and um, they want to talk about relationship issues and one of the issues that needs to be addressed is this gal is an unwed mom and she's not sure that the boyfriend sitting next to her is the father of her child and this guy before that appointment which is often true has no idea that it may not be and she wants the pastor to be the buffer the mediator uh, uh, to shield her from the anger of her boyfriend as she announces this potentially troublesome situation so unfortunately many times we've got to go to the practical application of hey you got to get a paternity test we've got to find out who the real biological dad is and those are those are most uncomfortable as we read here throughout the rest of john chapter 8 in relationship to jesus confronting the religious leaders as to who their true spiritual father is, it's going to get a little uncomfortable. But aren't you, aren't you glad personally that, that God the Spirit made you radically uncomfortable as he identified for you in your past how far from God you really were because of your own sin? You might remember back very briefly this morning those painful moments and you might want to run from those painful moments of reminder of how absolutely scared and fearful you were when God the Spirit exposed you as the lost sinner that you really are. Nonetheless, Jesus in his loyalty to the Father speaks truth to those who intellectually had believed in him but had not yet surrendered their wills to him. For the Jewish leader, of course, throughout the rest of the book or the chapter, they do have a father. His name is Abraham, they say. In verse 33, verse 36, verse 39, verse 53, verse 56, and verse 58, Both the Jews and Jesus have no problem admitting that they all descend from their 
family tree from the loins of Abraham. Of course, as Jesus questions a religious one's paternity test, they also turn and question his. This is how we know that the belief in verse 31 that we read about is just an intellectual. This is where we begin to understand that though they believed in him, maybe as a prophet, maybe even as a prophet sent from God, they did not see him as the logos of God just yet. Jesus, as he's done multiple times in John's gospel so far, claims that he's from above and that he does the will of his Father. He does so in verse 38, 40, and 42. Quite powerfully, Jesus says, I proceed from the Father. I come forth from God, speaking of his incarnation. I did not come of my own initiative, but God sent me, speaking of his mission in verse 54. It is my Father who glorifies me. Verse 55, so so important. He says twice, I know him in that verse, verse 58. Both intuitively and by personal experience, I know the Father. And that statement compels them to unlawfully, unlawfully pick up stones at the end of John chapter 8 to kill him. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, and there's that bold proclamation of his nature I am. I suppose one might think that the paternity debate would be over by now. But John's just getting started. It truly does dominate the passion, the passage. Again, remember, this is a, a matter of true discipleship. True saving faith is going to claim the right spiritual DNA. And false belief is also going to deny theirs. So religious unbelief dies back in and claims they know Jesus' Father. Their claims are quite sobering. They're that kind of condemning claim that will silence a room. In verse 53 of John chapter 8, they say, you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. Are you saying that you knew him and you've only been alive for less than 50 years, Jesus? Then verse 41, they state something true of themselves. In the middle of the verse, they say to him, we are not born of fornication. This is kind of really scary when they say this because they're claiming that Jesus was born illegitimately they're saying hey Jesus we've done the math we know the gestation period for a woman's nine months and and we know the date of your birth and we know that your dad hadn't known your mom physically yet we're not the sons of fornication but you are In verse 48, they get even more critical. If you, if you didn't think that was critical, there was something in this culture that was even more damning, more condemning than being called an illegitimate child. In verse 48, 
The religious leaders who had given intellectual but not volitional assent to him, the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan? And because you're a Samaritan, Jesus, you're even demon-possessed. It is amazing how someone that could give intellectual assent, be a professing Christian, can also, out of the other side of their mouth, say such clear, vivid, condemning things of Jesus, and not only vocally, but also in the way they live their lives. You're not a true G, true, 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 a true Jew, Jesus. You're demon-possessed too. It's like they're saying, let's just wrap up this whole argument quickly and be done with it. The religious leaders' arguments were logical and gradual in their minds, very carefully thought out, but they weren't stated clearly and compellingly according to God's word. They just went to their final arguments and made only two claims that could be terminal in nature. They wanted to end the debate. And Jesus stands before them in their estimation as unclean biologically and an unclean spiritually. He's a half-breed and from an unclean people and he condemns within himself one of the minions of Satan as a demon-possessed man. And in the process of the conversation, the Jews wise up themselves and piously state something quite profound in verse 41. They go vertical on Jesus. They say they are of the physical descendants of Abraham and we have God as our father. The Jews know Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22 where God says Israel is my firstborn son. They're familiar with Jeremiah 31, 9, Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2, where the Lord says, I am Israel's father. This is the religious Jews' proud claim and ultimate defiance and defense of their paternity test before Jesus. Well, the Lord Jesus is the final speaker of the debate, of the debate and with authority from on high. He speaks, says, says something very clearly in verse 37. Jesus graciously admits that they are descendants of Abraham. He has no problem with that. He is as well. And then he says in verse 37, yet you seek to kill me. He goes on to say in verse 40, again, you're seeking to kill me. And I'm the guy, the prophet of God in your own words that has told you the truth which I heard from God. And then he goes on to say, Abraham wouldn't do this. As a matter of fact, Abraham never wanted to kill me. In verse 56, John quotes Jesus, where Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he actually saw it, and he was glad. This word rejoice we studied this morning a little bit in Luke 15 in Pastor D'Angelo's Sunday School lesson, but it's mentioned a handful of other times in the New Testament. Final time it's mentioned of the rejoicing of those of God's people that sit with him in the marriage supper of the land of the Lamb at the end of the book of Revelation where the, there's, there's pure, the purest kind of joy and rejoicing in the Christian heart. And Jesus is saying here, 
Abraham, by faith, couldn't wait to see my day because his father was truly his creator God. This is the heart of Abraham, Jesus proclaims to the unbelieving Jews. And so doing, Jesus compels the Jews to remember the story of Abraham offering Isaac, his son, upon the altar. He would do so in faith, knowing that the Lord would raise him up from the dead, and God mercifully supplies a sacrifice in Isaac's place. You know the story. The Jews knew Abraham. Their father had rejoiced at what God had provided for him on that day. And they knew what that meant. They knew Abraham's faith even before the Isaac event. They knew what Moses had written, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So they knew Abraham, and they knew that he had rejoiced to see the day of this Jesus that was before them. Abraham didn't seek to kill Jesus. By faith, he placed the hope of eternal life in him. And of course, we all know what Hebrews 11 speaks of Abraham in that great Hall of Faith chapter. So like a skilled debater, Jesus inductively continues to build his paternity argument against the religious ones and continues his deeper dive by saying in general terms, verse 38, therefore... God's not your father, but you are doing things that you've heard from your father. Skillfully, Jesus directly ties their unlawful desire to kill him. And this would have been in their minds grammatically, directly associated with the Decalogue, where the law of Moses says, thou shalt not what? And what's the Hebrew term there? Premeditatively commit murder senselessly take one's life. So Jesus knows the desires of their hearts to senselessly, premeditatively take his life. And he says, you're doing the will of your father. And he continues in verse 41. After a bit more thorough interchange, Jesus lays it on the line and claims in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you continue to do the lusts of your father. Jesus goes back to Moses' writings of creation week with his closing paternity arguments by identifying their father as the devil who was a murderer from the beginning. He tempted Adam to sin. He knew the consequence would be death. He goes on to say, and the devil doesn't even stand in the truth. The devil is the antithesis of truth. He's distorted the truth, even from the garden. I mean, hath God said, as he spoke to Eve, there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, it's a lie. He speaks from his own nature. Jesus can't help himself but be the truth because he has come from the Father as the Logos of God, and Satan can't help himself but be a liar because he's finitely created and eternally condemned as such. 
He is the liar of all liars. He's the father of all lies. Jesus couldn't be more clear. Then he continues with them in verse 46. So which one of you is going to convict me of sin? The word convict here in the original language is give not just the sentencing or the reason why you want to kill. Give the data. Give the proof. Give the exhibit A, B, and C. Bring me to trial. Convict me. Who among you can do that? Of course the room's silent. No one can. So the conclusion... Jesus' Father is eternal and true, and He has narrated Himself and sought to glorify Himself in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Father is one with whom Son has enjoyed eternal, unsullied fellowship. Jesus has known Him from eternity past. His origin is from Him. His mission is granted from the Father. And Jesus was glad to humble Himself to the will of the Father and to bring light and life to all men. But the Jews who intellectually gave assent, they just wanted to do away with Him. They would lie their way to doing so because they had the DNA of their father, the devil. I suppose the the paternity debate is over, the tests are taken, and the DNA results are in now. Discipleship test number one, whose will are you seeking to do and why? The will of the Father is unto eternal purpose, and the will of the wicked one is unto all things temporary that end in death for all. Have you come to know true freedom? You have known the truth and the truth will set you free. Have you come to know true freedom as a lawbreaker? Have you come to know the perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ? Can you remember a time in your life where Jesus changed the way you thought? Jesus changed the way you live. Jesus changed the way you speak. And Jesus changed the very reason as to why you're living and breathing and here today. Living in Raleigh, North Carolina. You see, my friends, so many of us were asked the question when we were youth, and I suppose it's an appropriate question, but it just really teased the mind. If you were to die today, do you know you'd go to heaven? So many of us, including this guy, 
certainly stimulated and provoked in my mind, even to the point of emotively shedding a tear. Well, certainly, I don't know. And well, would you like to know? Yes, I would. And, and we're led to a prayer that I suppose is a, is a good prayer. But after praying that prayer out of emotion, we got up, probably with a smile on our face, maybe a little skip in our step. And we left feeling different. But as the weeks and months and years progressed, those identifiers as God as our Father are less and less known of us. As we began, I'd like to conclude by encouraging you to go through the rest of John chapter 8 sometime this evening and, and under, to underline every reference to Jesus as the Word of God and underline every reference of the spoken Word of God and understand that's, that's synonymous with the written Word of God. How is your relationship? Is it deepening with Scripture itself? Do you know the Father because you know the Logos, the Son, who is the living Word of God? And do you, do you have a, do you value the inspired, written, preserved page of Scripture as your greatest possession other than Christ on this earth? David did. Yea, than much fine gold. Yea, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. As his greatest possession was the Word of God. Is it deepening or has it just been waning to the point of maybe Maybe if a, if a Bible verse pops up as a reminder on my phone to enjoy the living Word of God, I'll do it. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. Jesus speaks of his own reason why the Father sent him in this text. As the third test of discipleship, do you live and own? Do you think about, pray about, and practice living the very reason why Jesus came to this earth as Mark states in 1045? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you find yourself living as a genuine disciple, someone who has passed the paternity test as God is your father? When Jesus called you and called his disciples, I'm calling you to make you fishers of men. So many books have been written in the last 10 years on the gospel. So much of the gospel is preached from pulpits. And so when I ask these questions, I ask them of myself and any other pastor in any other church. So many sermons have been preached and so many books have been written on the gospel so many debates are had on podcasts as to the content of the gospel and the truth of the gospel and are we holding true to it? And then there's the, the debates about Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism and Calvinism and all the nuances of the gospel and everyone claiming they've got the rights and the details of the gospel. Conferences are had over that. And yet you ask one pastor... 
Who in your town have you sat down with recently and gone through the good news of God your Father in Jesus Christ with in the last five years? Not from your pulpit, not from your pen, but in your person with another person. Do you know that 95% of American evangelical pastors have never won a personal friend to Christ in their own town? And the percentage is the same for their church members. People are being saved through VBSs, maybe through invitations, maybe at special occasions, events, funerals, weddings. Praise God, his arm is not short that it cannot save. But my friends, I would say those are all second line offenses for the gospel. The tip of the spear, first line, is you as God the Father's disciple in Jesus Christ. Our you on mission personally with your neighbor, with your coworker, with your family member, with your banker, with the person you exercise with. We all only have 168 hours in our week. And... Those hours are filled up with a lot of wonderful, noble things that we do. But my friend, if we're not on mission, can we truly say, can we boldly, confidently say, God is my Father? Or have we just given intellectual assent And satisfied our hearts that it's okay to believe that he's the son of God. And miss out what it means to have life through his name. Which is the whole theme of the book of John. Have life through his name. Eternal life that looks like something. It lives a very certain way in our communities. Have life through his name. If Grace and Mentor, if Friendship and Raleigh went out of existence, would the whole of our communities even miss us? Would they even care? Churches across Northeast Ohio are emptied, they're sold, they're becoming ice cream parlors, they're becoming bars, they're becoming retail establishments all over Northeast Ohio, and quite frankly, all over our country. You know what? A lot of those churches closed while their pastors stood up behind this box and they faithfully preached God's word every week. And even pastors are standing around scratching their heads when they don't itch. Why are things falling apart? Why is Jesus not building his church here? I'm preaching, I'm preaching, I'm preaching, I'm preaching. And my friends, they're closing even good Bible-believing churches because even pastors aren't loving Jesus. As they preach, we should. And the demonstration of their love for him is first seen 
in their love for who he loved and why he came. Is your father God? And are you doing the will of your father in these ways? Let's pray together. Thank you, O Lord, for the indwelling presence of your spirit that can take the written page and And bring its significance to our hearts. Lord, we know it's never too late to do the right thing. As your children and as our Father, you have narrated yourself and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just his nature and person, but his purpose and and the way he lived. I pray, Lord, that the why of his living would be our why from the moment we step forth from the service, even as we go to celebrate national freedom with our friends and neighbors this week. May they see in us a soul that's been set free from on high by the way we live and love and speak of our wonderful Jesus. Lord, use every soul, man, woman, and child at Friendship Baptist Church to have a spirit-filled burden for the lost souls that they rub shoulders with in the natural rhythms of their lives. As families, may we get on our knees and would we beg that you would use us for Christ's sake in and among the people that you've providentially placed us with for heaven's sake. May we go about each and every day with faces in our minds and names on our lips of those we love that are lost. And may you give Friendship Baptist Church and its true disciples a great harvest of lost souls in 2023 as they seek to live the will of the Father as done and demonstrated by the Son in their own lives as His children. In Christ's name, amen.